Welcome. My name is Patrick Curran, and along with my bright side of life friend Greg Hancock, we make up Quantitude. We are a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In today's episode, we talk about the potential advantages and disadvantages of alternative approaches to analyzing two-time point data. We discuss traditional models for raw and residualized change scores and describe how each of these remains baked into the soul of contemporary models for repeated measures data. Along the way, we also discuss 24-inch pizza pans, movie fails, being otherwise sophisticated, beer bongs, witches, third-grade math, emails from PETA, glorious histories, hairy eyeballs, and who do I see about that? We hope you enjoy today's episode. Who boy, did I have a bit of a fail last night. <laughs> Could you be more specific? <laughs> so we have a nice family thing where each week, if we got the time, I make a homemade pizza. Mm-hmm. Now, you have seen a picture of how excited I was when I got my new pizza pan. Oh, yes. Yeah, so <laughs> I, I wanted to get a new pizza pan, and I had this, like, weenie little 17-inch pizza pan, mm-hmm. and I wanted a 24-inch pizza pan. But I couldn't figure out why they were so hard to find on Amazon. They were all 17. And I finally found this 24-inch. I was so excited. I ordered it. I got it. I made a homemade pizza, opened the oven, and stuck it in. And it stuck out by about five inches. And realized as I stood there, two things. Uh Is one, I got to send a picture of this to Hancock. And Uh two, this explains why it's so hard to find a 24-inch pizza pan, because evidently you have to run your own pizzeria Uh for those to be of any use. Interestingly enough, that was not the fail. No, I made my homemade pizza on the Mm -hmm. 17-inch, fool me once. How did you do that? You trimmed the pizza down? I had to throw away that one. There was no saving it. One of the things that drives me insane is sitting around trying to pick something to watch. We have had evenings where we've eaten the entire dinner without having decided what to watch mm-hmm. because we try to do it in a democratic way. And that's the biggest mistake. Yeah. An executive decision must be made. I've taken to making executive decisions about what we're going to watch. Shocker. Sometimes they work really well. <laughs> I go to the memory banks. And I pick a movie that was near and dear to me when I was younger, and I share it. And I've had some huge successes in what the kids have liked. Are you suggesting coconuts migrate? Not at all. They could be carried. What? A swallow carrying a coconut? Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. 106 miles to Chicago. We got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes, it's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. (laughs) I have had an equal number of abject fails, and last Mm -hmm. night I made an awesome pizza (laughs) and queued up the good, the bad, and the ugly. You see, in this world, there's two kinds of people, my friend. Those with loaded guns and those who dig. You dig. Classic. Oh my God, I forgot how boring that movie is. <laughs> it is like 11 hours long, or at least it seems like it's 11 hours long. Mm-hmm. We were about 20 minutes in, and the kids were like, Oh, I'm full. I have homework. I got to go. <laughs> What's a win that you've chalked up for a movie that you really liked and the kids liked it as well? I scored on Groundhog Day. <gasps> totally scored on Groundhog Day. I have been stabbed, shot, poisoned, frozen, hung, electrocuted, and burned. I'm a god. You're god. I'm a god. I'm not the god. I don't think. <laughs> so I think we're in this funny place where we've got these cherished memories from movies that we loved, mm-hmm. and then we see them again now, and they're either as good as we remember, but a whole lot of them are not as funny or not as interesting or are kind of boring. <laughs> and it gets you wondering, is it us who have changed as uh-huh. individuals? Is our memory bad? I would say there are a lot of elements that have changed. 
maybe part of what has happened is that over the years, what we consider entertaining, what we consider funny has changed just in terms of the environment around us. Also, we have changed a little bit. Which brings us to maybe what we want to talk about today, which is pre-post kind of things. Change over time. Is there something as basic as asking, has something changed? We've joked on my lab that we need t-shirts printed up that says, well, how hard could that be? (laughs) Okay, so you're going to go on a diet. You're going to start running. Mm -hmm. You weigh yourself before you start running and you do four weeks of a running regimen and you weigh yourself after. Did you lose weight or not? Uh, It turns out it's a little harder than you might think. There are so many options for dealing with just pre-post data. So let's frame this out, at least for starters. We are going to try to talk about all of the different options, eh, a lot of the different options, for if you have two time point data. What the heck do you do? You and I care a lot about change. And when you ask your question, then I think, what do we even mean by change? Which makes me think about the greatest success I ever had with the kids. What? Is your name? My name is Sir Lancelot of Camelot. What is your quest? To seek the Holy Grail. What is your favorite color? Blue. Right, off you go. (laughs) Yes! Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Absolutely. I think the central theme for this entire discussion is what is your quest. (laughs) Because we have been throwing things at each other in the literature for a century. What it often, not always, but often distills down to is what is your quest? Mm. What are you trying to achieve? And on top of that, I'm going to add a little bit. (laughs) You are not aware of this Uh because it's a little bit of payback for you and your 1960s music titles of which I missed every single one. Great. I am going to weave in. Monty Python quotes and see if you're able to identify those. So throughout the remainder of the episode, I will occasionally weave these in Mm -hmm. very much like I got you, babe, which in (laughs) retrospect, I should have identified. Uh Let's start out with what is our point. What I would like to do is puzzle through what are some different approaches to just traditional pre-post. Why do people yell at each other about it to this day? Is it really so bad that we should never use Mm pre-post? And to give away the punchline, absolutely not. This is still valuable design that we can consider in particular situations. And the one that I would really like to drill into is how do these traditional methods relate to some pretty modern stuff we do mm-hmm. in latent curve models and autoregressive cross lags and these hybrid models that exist. We have to understand these two time point models yep. in order to understand what these seemingly advanced methods are doing and why stress seemingly is they're pretty highly engineered approaches for doing two time point models. We're just going to chain them together. I like everything except for you poking at me with the Monty Python stuff, but that's okay. All right, so you got two time points. These are your data. You've got pre-post data. Can I pop quiz you? (laughs) Before we get to even thinking about two time points. Okay. I think a topic that everybody needs at their fingertips when they sit down at the piano. Articulate for me, Dr. Hancock, the way in which single time point assessments are limited. I think that the answer that would be given would depend on who is sitting in this particular chair. I think some people would actually speak pretty flexibly and open-mindedly about single time point designs, and other people would be much more rigid in their particular answer. I would say that a rigid answer is that you have no sense of the actual passage of time. You don't have the same variables measured at multiple points in time, so you can't control for what had gone on in particular variables at a later time point. It's very, very difficult to sort out time. And so you wind up doing these kinds of path models and you are really, really relying very heavily on theory to try and sort all of it out. So when you connect a variable that you consider to be from an earlier time, even if you measured at the same time, to some variable that you consider to be at a later time point, all of the rationale behind this is completely theoretical and untestable. 
You don't literally have the separation of time and you don't literally have the measures at multiple time points. You and I jointly, I couldn't even guess how many cross-sectional papers we've written or been affiliated with. Sure. They still have advantages. They're good idea generating. They're good Mm -hmm. evaluating measurement property, things like that. But to me, it goes back to John Stuart Mill's corpse, which, by the way, we got an email a couple of days ago from John Stuart's corpse. <laughs> I liked that. I didn't know JS could use email since he doesn't have any knuckles anymore. <laughs> if you think about the core tenets of inferring cause, yeah. you have the cause precedes the effect, mm-hmm. the cause is demonstrably related to the effect, and the third one is there are no other plausible alternatives. Of course, if you have cross-sectional, you lose that temporal precedence and you have to rely on theory. And it brings in the Lee and Hirschberger equivalent mm-hmm. models like on spring break, man. They've got an equivalent model beer bong in Panama City <laughs> of how many ways you can rearrange a path model sure. that you have not locked in time. But for me, it all distills down to the loss of a huge number of models that you could rule out. Mm -hmm. If we have X number of plausible models in a cross-sectional setting, then we have some X minus Y number of plausible models in a longitudinal. It's still Mm -hmm. a pretty darn big number, but it's markably smaller than cross-sectional. The one that scares the willies out of me, I have a thing I use in class where I generated five time point data that followed a simple linear growth for a sample of a couple hundred people. Mm -hmm. If you take that data that has this very nice open fan growth and individual Mm -hmm. differences and trajectories, I do a random draw from the five observations where each person Mm -hmm. gets just one drawn and then fit a regression. And then I do another random draw and fit a regression, not only are the regressions different from the population generating model, but the regressions are different from one another. Right. (laughs) That should keep you up at night. Sometimes you are stuck with cross-sectional data. And sometimes even though the data are gathered in one particular time point, you may have a very strong theoretical rationale that when I ask you, for example, how many parents were in your home when you were born, even though I'm asking you that now, I feel pretty comfortable that that is something that precedes what I am asking you about at this current time point. So I think there are variables that we can logically and theoretically put time in there, which people do. The other thing is, and this relates to your John Stuart Mill comment, you might have no other possible explanations, right? And that's really the basis for a lot of the DAGs and structural models. The idea being that if you could articulate all the possible mechanisms that are operating and the only ones possible could go in a particular direction, whether for reasons of logic or physiological mechanism or other things, then those cross-sectional models might have some place. That's a whole lot of asterisks on like every other word that I said. (laughs) All hope isn't lost if you have cross-sectional data, but there are so, so many limitations. Back in the day, two-time point data, they're sometimes called pre-post designs, Mm -hmm. was primarily related out of experimental designs. So there was some randomization, then there was some follow-up, and you wanted to know was there change between the two time points. Mm -hmm. Certainly, they're not limited to true experimental designs with randomization. We can look at things like biological sex differences, or we can look mm-hmm. at SES differences in categories or whatever. So whatever it might be is we have a question of, is there some kind of change between two time points that are important to us for some reason? There are two core ways that we're going to talk about. The one that is near and dear to my heart because it makes sense, and so little in my life makes sense <laughs> to me is if you want to know the change between the pre and the post, you take the post and you subtract the pre and you have a new variable. Done. That is the raw change score. Absolutely. It makes so much sense. If I weighed 180 pounds and then I Mm -hmm. started running and four weeks later I weighed 170 pounds, my change score is negative 10. That's going to be raw change. Now, what we're going to talk about in a moment 
is what's called residualized change. So instead of taking y2 minus y1 and creating a new variable, we're going to regress y2 on y1. So we're going to use y1 as a predictor of y2 Mm -hmm. and look at the residual, what is left over. It is not what is the difference between your time one and time two scores. It is where are you at time two relative to what we would have expected based on your time one scores? All right. Often, we turn to the experts of the field to help guide us. Absolutely. So we'll do that here. (laughs) Kronbach and Furby, 1970, they hit a wonderful ball into play as to should we ever be using raw change? Mm -hmm. Before we go into their quote, this has one of the greatest insults that an academician can lay. (laughs) I love this. All right. Take notes, people. Take notes. This is how you insult somebody. Raw change or raw gain scores formed by subtracting pretest scores from post-test scores lead to fallacious conclusions, primarily because such scores are systematically related to any random error of measurement. Although the unsuitability of such scores has long been discussed, they are still employed even by some otherwise sophisticated investigators. (laughs) otherwise sophisticated. I'm going to have a bumper sticker made that I am otherwise sophisticated. (laughs) All right. That's pretty unambiguous. I mean, Kronbach, right? Kronbach, dude. Yeah. Okay. Right. John Willett is one of my heroes. John Willett (laughs) is one of the most important quantitative methodologists in studying the measurement and modeling of development over time. What was that little university he was at? I don't remember. Uh, Barvard Mm. or Blarvard or... Marvard. Yeah, I don't remember. I don't know. Something like that. Massachusetts somewhere. Okay. Another fail on the movies is this is Spinal Tap. Uh, The other thing is that the, uh, the Boston gig has been canceled. I wouldn't worry about it, though. It's not a big college town. (laughs) So John Willett from Harvard University says in talking about residualized change, when discussing residualized change scores, methodologists disagree as to what exactly is being estimated, how well it is being estimated, and how it can be interpreted. So other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, did you enjoy the play? (laughs) In addition to the many technical and practical problems that arise in the empirical application of residual change scores, there also remain unresolved issues of logic and substance. I strongly advise the researcher to avoid these scores as measures of within-person change. Okay. All right. So we got Kronbach telling us don't ever do this, and we've got Willett telling us don't ever do the other thing. So like anything in a situation like this, the answer to the question of which should you use, raw change or residualized change, the definitive answer is yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why? Because... What? Is that a quest? <laughs> to pivot into it is, mm-hmm. please, this is supposed to be a happy occasion. Let's not bicker and argue over who killed who. Uh, that's Monty Python right there. This might be harder to do than I thought. <laughs> that just wasn't natural. How do you work that in naturally? It's true. Let's not bicker and argue about who killed who. Could have had a better segue there, but okay. Dude, are you micromanaging my attack on you? Yes, I am. You said this isn't a democracy. Tell me about raw change. Well, I can get in the way back machine and tell you about how I learned about raw change. And I learned about raw change, first of all, when there was a single group that you had pre-post. Obviously, we had the dependent sample t-test, and I was very good at that. And then I learned I could also get different scores and just do a one sample t-test on different scores, which was identical to that. When we introduced a second group, which either might be by random assignment or otherwise on some other characteristic, what I... I learned back in the day was to do a mixed type of model. And back then, mixed type of models meant we had these factorial designs that contained what we would call a between subjects factor, in this case group, and a within subjects factor, in this case time. And so what we might have then, if we've got two groups, let's say treatment and control randomly assigned, we've got two time points, pre and post. What I learned in my ANOVA class was that that would be a two by two design where there are parentheses around one of the twos to indicate it's within subjects factor. And there would be three effects that would come out of that. There would be a main effect for group, 
I feel like I'm interested in that, but I'm not really interested in that because that's just an average across time between the groups. So I'm not really so interested in that. I can also get a main effect for time, which sort of feels like I'm interested in that. But again, that's averaged over the two groups. And if one group is changing over time and the other isn't, then that just sort of washes it out. So the only thing I'm left with in that design is a group by time interaction. And it turns out the group by time interaction is the test of whether there is differential pre-post change across the groups. So I learned that, I memorized that, God help me, I figured out what the proper error term was for testing <laughs> that, all of those kinds of things back in the day. But what I also learned is you could have simplified that all along. You could have just taken the scores that you had for both groups pre-post, subtracted them, got different scores for your control group, different scores for your treatment group, and just asked whether or not the mean difference scores differed across those groups. That was your interaction, but more to the point, that was exactly the question that I was asking, is there a difference pre-post across these two groups? Or at least that's the question I thought we were asking. Well, and that's when things start to get away from you, right? Mm Because when you and I came up through the farm club, we could get away by saying, I'm interested in change in my outcome. Mm -hmm. Back in the day, we could say, I got these repeated measures and somebody at your dissertation defense would say, what are you predicting? And say, well, I'm predicting that there's change between the two time points on the outcome. Mm -hmm. Now, 142 years later, (laughs) I've been at a lot of meetings where somebody has said, well, what kind of change? Because as our methods have developed and our measures have developed and our analytic models have become more comprehensive and complex, there's actually a poke in the eye of, well, what do you mean by change? Is there systematic change or episodic change? Is there within-person change or between-person change? Is Mm -hmm. there continuities or discontinuities? And so it's going back to the what is your quest Don't let anyone tell you the always never distinction in this stuff. We're up to our eyeballs in, oh, you should never do the models that way. You should always do it this way. Mm -hmm. We only have two time points of data and a grouping variable. There are only so many ways we can arrange the furniture on the deck with those three pieces of information. Now, let me ask you. Mm. I went from 180 to 170, and I got a negative 10. Mm -hmm. The person next to me went 120 to 110 and got a negative 10. We both have a negative 10. We lost exactly the same amount of weight. Mm -hmm. But did I really lose the same amount of weight because I started at 180 and the other person started at 120? Oh, so what do you do? You're saying that somehow that's not fair, maybe that somehow the other person should get more credit or somehow we need to take into account this baseline information. That's exactly right. Because one thing that we hold wholly in this podcast, besides making fun of each other on a routine basis, Mm -hmm. is recognizing that when you hold a number in your hand, that represents something. Mm -hmm. And it is sacred to us as quantity people to know what that represents and what that is capturing. And if in my right hand I have a negative 10 and in my left hand I have a negative 10, are those both the same? Mm -hmm. If not, do we need to take in individual variability in where you started when we're building a model to understand where you went between the two time points? So you are confusing me in a way that I was confused all the way back in the day. And that confusion started when I learned about analysis of covariance, which I consider simultaneously a beautiful and incredibly challenging little tool there. What I learned was that I could use the pretest score as a covariate and then look at whether or not there are group differences above and beyond that pretest as a covariate. I have to be able to say the question carefully because it's not the same question. So the original question that I did in a mixed effects ANOVA, if we want to call it that, a mixed model ANOVA, the original question was literally about a difference score, whether you had that 10 pound change and someone else had that 10 pound change. But now I'm saying, what would I expect you to weigh at time two based on what you weigh at time one? And then after that, are you more or are you less based on which group you are in? So it is predicted weight and your residual from that. Ah, help me out here. The core question we're asking is, if she weighs the same as a duck, she's made of wood and therefore a witch. (laughs) (laughs) She's a witch! 
witch. She's a witch. This is just not working as well as I, I thought it would. If she weighs the same as a duck, she's made of wood. And therefore, a witch. A witch. All right, I'm, I'm not going to give up. I love it, though. I'm not going to give up. So help me out with the question here. The wording just feels like quite a little dance to get it right. So we're going to do a little Marcel Marceau of equations in our head, all right? Okay. The raw score change, whatever your software package of choice is, is you say D equals Y2 minus Y1, and you generated a new variable. Sometimes that's hard to get your head around, is you're creating a new variable, and now you have Y1, and you have Y2, and you have D. That's a new variable in your data set. And you have all your other variables. We've been talking about group differences in two groups. But when we have D, it's like have D will travel, right? As we mm-hmm. can take it into a regression model, we can predict it with continuous variables. We can predict it with categorical grouping variables. Now, what you're describing is to say, all right, what is the second one? That is the residualized change. Now, here's where I'm going to do my Marcel Marceau. So if you're driving and you're in heavy traffic, Be careful as you do this. Picture in your mind's eye that we have a one predictor regression equation. So Y2 equals, now we're going to ignore the intercept term. It's there, but it's just a scaling constant and it's not important. So I'm going to ignore the intercept term. We have Y2 equals beta 1 times Y1 plus epsilon, your residual. Mm -hmm. We have a one predictor regression, all right? So we're going to regress Y2 on Y1. Now, we're going to use third grade math and subtract the beta 1 Y1 from both sides of the equation. Mm -hmm. What that does is isolates the residual, epsilon sub I. What does that mean? Well, it means two things that we see. One is the residual is equal to Y2 minus beta times Y1. For each individual in the sample, we're computing a residualized change that is a function of the weighted contribution of your time one. So as I think you nicely described, we're trying to get a sense of where would we predict you to be at time two, Mm -hmm. given your standing relative to the mean at time one. So if you have a positive residual, that means you weigh more than we would have expected you to based on your weight at time one. If you have a negative residual, then you weigh less than we would have expected. Exactly. And further picturing your mind's eye, just a two-dimensional scatter plot. Mm-hmm. Y1 is the x-axis, Y2 is the y-axis. Let's say it's positive and you have a scatter plot. You lay in an OLS regression and residualized change is the distance between your observed score and the line, which is the predicted score. Cool. All right, so this is what Willett was kind of saying of it's like, well, wait a minute. Are you saying that my time to weight is in part caused by my time one weight, right? Because that's kind of what you're saying if you're using Y1 as a predictor of Y2. So that's where you start getting into this maybe weird theoretical ground. Mm -hmm. But here's the other one. Picture epsilon equals Y2 minus beta Y1. Remember D, which is our difference score, equals Y2 minus Y1. Mm -hmm. Raw change is residualized change when beta equals Mm 1. Because residual is Y2 minus beta Y1. Raw change is Y2 minus Y1. So when people are throwing things at each other about how you should always do this or never do that, raw change and residualized change is intimately linked Mm -hmm. by whether beta equals one or beta equals some value other than one. That is the crux of the difference there. And it's very easy to distill it down to, oh, is the slope one, is the slope not one? But it's harder to attach meaning to those things. I understand when the slope is one that the residual represents a literal difference in pre and post. But when the slope isn't one, it still is harder for me to get my head around that, not in terms of residual. I'm really good at residuals in regression. But when I start bringing the word change in, ah, that's where it starts to get slippery for me. Oh, now we see the violence inherent in the system. Help, help, (laughs) I'm being repressed. See the violence inherent in the system. Help, help, I'm being repressed. Okay, I'm just going to stop. This just isn't going to work. I have first thou shalt take out the holy pin, then shalt thou count to three. That's not going to work. I don't want to talk to you no more, you empty-headed animal food trough. So this just was a fail. I understand that now. See, it's harder than you thought. 
what is your quest? What are mm-hmm. you trying to achieve? Because from an analytic standpoint, we fully understand what the functional relation is between these two. Mm-hmm. These two are functionally related. So now it becomes, what are you trying to achieve? Mm-hmm. I think there are some situations in which using Y1 to predict Y2 in a regression-like framework makes theoretical sense Mm -hmm. and is what you're trying to do. And in some ways, I think you are light years away from saying a child's height when they were six in part caused the child's height when they were seven. I really like what you said earlier with your example about you losing 10 pounds and someone else losing 10 pounds, but that person was considerably lighter. That, for me, helps me to think about this as a little decision tree. So you and I have talked about change before and the critical role of your question in determining which technique might be appropriate from among a set of whiteboard techniques. If you could say, is 10 pounds, 10 pounds, 10 pounds, 10 pounds, no matter who it is, that to me seems to be leading you down a different score, raw change particular path. But if you think somehow 10 pounds doesn't mean the same thing for everybody, then that to me starts leading you down more of a covariate or control kind of path. Is that a fair statement to make? Yeah, I would agree with that. One of the things that you have to get your head around that is really bizarre is that in the ANCOVA procedure, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you could have lost 10 pounds and wind up having a positive residual. Oh, dude, this is where I start chasing my tail. Like you have a cat and you put a little masking tape on its tail and then pop a beer and watch it run round and round in circles. PETA, no emails, PETA. I did not actually do this. All right. At your fingertips, you should have a regression coefficient for a one predictor regression is the covariance between X and Y divided by the variance of X. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be the covariance between Y1 and Y2 divided by the variance of Y1 if we're doing a residualized change. Picture in your mind's eye the mean and distribution at time one and the mean and distribution at time two. So imagine them two box plots next to each other. And imagine that time two for the whole group has gone up. Mm -hmm. Let's say you're studying something that has increased over time. We're going to compute that residualized change by looking at an individual's relative standing at time one times the individual's relative standing at time two. That's a covariance. Y1 minus the mean of Y1 and Y2 minus the mean of Y2. Now picture two people in their individual contribution to that covariance. Let's say that the mean at time one is two and the mean at time two is four. Let's say that my individual score is three at time one, so I'm a unit above the mean, Mm -hmm. and three at time two, I'm a unit below the mean. My contribution to the covariance is negative. Yeah. Because my relative standing has gone down. That seems very un-American to me. (laughs) Now picture somebody who has a three and a five. Mm -hmm. So they're a unit above at time one, and they're a unit above at time two. They have no change because their relative standing is exactly the same. This is what Willett was really getting after because Willett was an educational developmental person and things change naturally over time. This is a viper pit when you have individual variability and systematic change over time. That's where I have trouble getting my head around it, right? I can say things that are kind of generic, like 10 pounds is not the same for everybody. I can say things like that, but I don't know what it means in terms of change. I don't know what it means, and I really run into challenges with this. And I have to tell you, I tend to gravitate toward raw change, maybe because I'm just a really simplistic person. I think that's one of the things that I find attractive in the growth modeling paradigm more broadly is that I tend to think about things in terms of raw change. So maybe you think about things more flexibly? I don't. No? (laughs) I have a third degree black belt in rigidity. (laughs) So a couple of quick thoughts, and one is going to telegraph where we're going to go later in the conversation. I am going to argue that relative change with the residualized in some situations is actually exactly what I'm after. Hmm. That's going to arise in some of these more recent developments and what are sometimes called hybrid models of growth. Something that is very important in my own work is trying to distinguish 
between-person changes from within-person changes. It's one thing to ask, do anxious people tend to drink more, Mm -hmm. is a between-person question. The within-person question is, if you're more anxious than you usually are, do you tend to drink more than you usually do? And that Mm -hmm. actually becomes a residualized type of question. Mm -hmm. But we'll get to that in a moment. The one thing I want to clarify, because even you and I, I think, are mixing streams a little bit in the raw and the residualized, which you can't help, right? Is you can't help but do this because they're so complicated. I was the one who raised it, is 10 pounds, is 10 pounds, is 10 pounds. The raw change scores we've been describing up till this point actually isn't taking that into account. We have Mm -hmm. this D that is negative 10 for both people, and we're looking at group differences on that. What we need to do is bring in the pretest of what your initial weight was in predicting the raw change score, which now you start getting this hybrid mm. kind of thing because your dependent variable is raw change, but now your predictor side is, say, treatment group membership and baseline and the interaction. And mm-hmm. this teleports back to another one of my heroes in the field. David Ragosa. Late 70s, early 80s, he wrote some of the most important papers at the time, and he puzzled through what you guys across the street in education have been talking about for decades is sometimes called an ATI, or Aptitude Mm -hmm. by Treatment Interaction. And that is, is there differential response to some intervention that varies in magnitude and form as a function of what your baseline ability is? And indeed, you can go back 50, 60, 70 years. This is the foundation for Head Start, Mm -hmm. right? Is there's this wonderful concept of each child transitioning from learning to read to reading to learn. I love that distinction. I know. Right? Is at some point you got to teach a kid how to read. And when they have that reading ability, then they're able to learn more. Mm -hmm. But if kids, because of social inequity and institutional racism and uneven distribution of resources, come to kindergarten with meaningful individual differences in the ability to read, then right out of the gate, you're baking in potential inequities in benefiting from instruction in the classroom. And one of the biggest motivations for Head Start was to go in before kindergarten and try to bring everybody up to this level. So there's a glorious history in your field of this. Mm -hmm. Can we look at a treatment by baseline interaction? But then this makes this other kind of tie to the residualized change in a way that's even harder to get your head around. That's right. We have a glorious history of violating one of the fundamental assumptions of Ankova, (laughs) is what you're saying. You didn't have to put a valence on it. I just said it was a (laughs) glorious history. So one of the benefits of the ANCOVA model is the ability to take into account these aptitude treatment interactions. What that means, if I go back to you losing 10 pounds and someone else losing 10 pounds, what we said was that maybe 10 pounds is not the same for all people. And that was introducing the idea of a covariate. And that's what ANCOVA tries to do. It tries to take into account that information. The interaction then is that, well, maybe your initial weight is more important as a predictor in the treatment group than it is the control group, for example. All that means is that we have a general linear model that includes a group variable, that includes pretest and includes an interaction between the two. ANCOVA traditionally would say, well, you better test that before you do the ANCOVA. But when we're but when we're using these general linear models, these general linear models, we say, heck, put it all in there and help ourselves to understand things. It still makes it really hard for me to understand change, though. How do I understand change in all of that? Got me. <laughs> because where you start getting into the neo red pill, blue pill. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Not Money Python. (laughs) You can do an ANCOVA with Y2 as the dependent variable, or you can Mm -hmm. do an ANCOVA with D as the dependent variable. All I'm offering is the truth, nothing more. And use the pretest in each and group in each and interaction in each 
And there are points where those are exactly the same model. Right. There's a ton of good work in this area, but one that I really like in explicating exactly what we're talking about here is by Roush, Maxwell, and Kelly. It is in Journal of Clinical Child and Adolescent Psychology in 2003. They puzzle through very carefully and in a very accessible way what's called pre-post-post design. Mm -hmm. So it's a three-time point. But you have the baseline and then a post and then a follow-up. I won't go into the details here. Just go on Google Scholar and type in pre-post-post and this will pop up. They show in there that, again, these things are doing the same thing when they're parameterized in this particular kind of way of using the pre-score in predicting the Mm -hmm. raw change and whatnot. The main point is, if you're not doing a randomized assignment to condition, and even more importantly, have successfully randomized Mm because he wrote number three for me that's going to come in as Dave Kenny. He has this wonderful term about unhappy randomization. Right. (laughs) Where despite our best efforts, randomization is, well, random. Yeah. And sometimes it don't work. A residualized change, even if you're attempting randomization and fail, allows for some statistical adjustment where you may have differences between treatment and control. Mm-hmm. Let's telegraph back an hour, at least in our time. Hopefully, mm-hmm. we've done some prodigious <laughs> editing that it wasn't an hour ago in real time. Mm-hmm. Why was Cronbach so pissy? about not using the raw change? Because we haven't really talked about that. I think it's sort of predictable, right? Because Kronbach, as we often think of him, sort of a father of assessing reliability of measures. And even though... We are, I would say, as a field trying to move past some of his very useful initial work in reliability. That was the core of his concern, the problem that has to do with measurement error. What he and Furby were trying to express, at least in part, was that if I have Y1 that has a certain amount of unreliability and I have Y2 that has a certain amount of reliability, what happens when I take the difference score? And the concern right there was that the thing that you get out could be horribly noisy because it's combining the noise from each of those two measures. Quite predictably, the concern was that different scores are going to be very, very unreliable. So unreliable that it's ill-advised for you to do them. Kronbach showed unambiguously that a different score can be drastically less reliable than either of the component scores at Y1 Mm -hmm. and Y2. Ragosa and Will it equally unambiguously showed that you can have a different score that is more reliable than either of the component scores. Ragosa and Willett have some really nice pieces in the 80s together. One's in Psychometrica. It's a pretty heavy mm-hmm. lift, but they show in the presence of individual variability and developmental change over time, the raw change score is more reliable. Quite predictably, if you form a different score out of two variables, that measured difference score is going to be a function of the error in the two variables that went into making up the difference score, as well as the amount of variability that is in the thing that that difference score is trying to measure. And the thing that that difference score is trying to measure is that true underlying latent difference, that difference that transcends the measurement error. If there is a lot of variability in the true underlying difference scores, then it can absolutely swamp the measurement errors that those two variables bring in individually. And you can have very reliable things. So I think the blanket statement that the measurement error in different scores is a problem is something that you really can't know a priori. Now, it is the case if people are pretty lockstep in the amount that they change. In other words, there's not a lot of individual differences in their time one to time two slopes or changes then you might have unreliability in those measured variables, but that's not necessarily the case at all. That brings me to another of one of my favorite quotes from Ragosa, Mm -hmm. which is, two time points are better than one, but maybe not much better. (laughs) I love that quote because Ragosa and Willett and then people coming with Meredith and Tsak and McArdle and we're off to the races with more modern kinds of models for change over time, one of Ragosa's big points, and he has an early 80s psych bowl paper 
I don't have it in front of me, but it's Ragosa Branton Zamowski, I think. And I'm going to go with 83. He was almost prescient mm-hmm. in telegraphing where the field was going to go in the next 10 and 20 years in the focus on growth. Mm-hmm. One thing that you and I don't want to inadvertently convey is that you should never do a two-time point comparison. There are many situations where two-time points are good and acceptable and achieve the goals that are set out. Totally. However, there are situations where moving from two to three time points allows us a set of models and insights that are not possible with the pre-post designs. And that was what Ragosa was talking about is absolutely get to, but dude, if you're out there working that hard, pick up a third and the world is at our fingertips then. There are two directions that I really see that we have evolved in the time since the criticisms that Kronbach and Furby were leveling. One is our ability to handle multiple time points. And if you just think about that, when you have two time points and you fit them with a line to understand change, you hit every point. When you have three time points, the points almost never line up. Even if the true growth followed a particular trajectory that was linear, the measures seldom line up. But the idea of that line sort of cutting through the noise and the additional points helping you to level each other out a little bit is a wonderful thing to be able to do. And we have talked about it previously previously in podcast episodes here about different ways to get at that, whether multi-level or through growth. So I think that's absolutely one way that Ragosa was telegraphing. The other is our ability to deal with measurement error. We are much, much better at dealing with measurement error than we used to. I don't want people to go away saying, oh, I guess I can't have two time points. You absolutely can't have two time points, like you said. But we can also accommodate measurement error, whether it's in a two time point design or more time point designs. What it requires, though, is for you to be more thoughtful in the data that you gather, the variable that you gather at each time point. If I were interested in measuring anxiety, rather than doing it with one single error-prone variable, what I might want to do instead is to gather multiple measures of anxiety so that across those multiple measures, I can sort of, and I'm saying this colloquially, sort of triangulate a bit in on what might be the underlying level of anxiety. You and I know about doing that through latent variable models or factor models. But rather than thinking about pre-post change in terms of a measured variable, we can think about pre-post change in terms of the latent variable that underlies that and modeling that directly. So even with two time points, if someone can gather more variables around the constructs that they're interested in, we can do a better job of getting around some of those early criticisms of measurement error and start framing our questions of change at the level of the latent variable that we care about. We can do those kinds of models in a latent difference way, or we can do those kinds of models in a latent covariate way. We have those options available to us. Then in the end, I think the choice point is, what is your request? (laughs) So we certainly know how to deal with measurement error better now. And then the other issue, oh, how much more beautiful things get when you really can get that third time point, whether you're in the measured world or up in the latent world, either way, things just get so lovely. It's just about options, right? All of life is about options. (laughs) Neither you nor I do well when we feel like we're not in control. Right now, my kid is sick and in bed as we speak. I want to pull my hair out because there's nothing I can do about it. Yeah. When you have two time points, you're absolutely right. There's a lot we can do with measurement error if you have multiple indicator latent factors, but we still got your X, Y axes and you have time one and time two. The only trajectory you can fit is to connect the two dots. Mm -hmm. And there is no overfitting. You don't have a degree of freedom. It's saturated. There's no error around that. It's not until you get three that you can overfit a line. But the thing that I find so interesting is the number of people who I interact with who in some way or another allude to the fact that we don't have to worry about the raw change and residualized change issues anymore because we've moved to these more advanced models. (laughs) I got news for you. Mm -hmm. A latent curve model has raw change baked into its very soul, and the autoregressive cross-lagged model and its variants have residualized change baked into its soul, and all we've done is scaled it up. They're beautiful, they're elegant, but they don't solve the fundamental problem. And is it a problem or is it a feature? (laughs) (laughs) That is a great question. 
We talked at length early on last season about the differences between the autoregressive cross lag panel models versus growth models. In the end, you have to be able to ask yourself, what do you literally mean by change? And that extends out to whether we have two time points or more time points. You have to come back to the original what is your question? What is your notion of change? Maybe that's the main walkaway point of what we're talking about here. Right, off you go. There's no mystery in the models. We know what assumptions we're taking on. We know the functional relations between raw score and residualized score. There aren't any remaining mysteries to the analytics of the models. And indeed, Kronbach was correct in his assertions. Will it? was correct in his assertions. They were working under different assumptions, different premises, yes. different questions, different motivations for why you're doing what you're doing. There are no mysteries remaining. So what it becomes then is, what is your quest? What are you mm -hmm. trying to achieve? So we have the whole latent curve model. All right, individual variability and starting point and rates of change and developmental trajectories. That is fundamentally building a model for raw score change. We have the autoregressive cross line. What is Y2 predicting Z3 above and beyond Z2? Mm -hmm. That's a residualized change. And then we have all these wonderful hybrid models now. We have the ALT model. We have the LCM-SR model. We have latent change score model. Mm -hmm. We have a random intercept cross-like model. It's a whiteboard problem. Sharpie in your rectangles, and every one of us can go up and draw in our model, and it's just a different model. Number one, don't do away with just cross-sectional data, but know what its limitations are. Two, mm -hmm. don't do away with pre-post designs, because there are questions that that is perfectly reasonable for, but know the limitations. And as you move into three or five or seven or 10 or 20 repeated measures and you're thinking about, let's go up to the food bar and pick the model that we want from that, is know that this stuff going all the way back to Kronbach applies in exactly the same way here. What are you trying to achieve? So let me put you on the spot. Give me an example of a research question that you think is well addressed by some difference-based model. Give me a research question that you think is well addressed by some covariate kind of based model. And if you want to extend those out to multiple time points, that's fine. But I would love it if you could give me something that anybody out there listening could say, oh, my question is more like that, or my question is more like that. And go. Other than the medicine, education, wine, public order, irrigation, <laughs> roads, fresh water system, and public health, what have the Romans ever done for us? Uh, I tried one last time. It's just not going to work. <laughs> oh, man, what a fail. I can only speak from my own work because mm -hmm. really at the end of the day, this is about me. Yes, yes, yes. We've established that. I have started to find that which model I'm drawn to is in large part impacted by what is the time frame. Let's say I'm doing the old school panel assessments of anxiety and alcohol use in adolescence. And what I mean by panel is let's say that I have data at age 12 and 13 and 14 and 15 and 16. Mm -hmm. And at each period I assess anxiety and I assess substance use. To me, I'm going to be interested in a raw change model because of that time window. I can envision over a five-year period in adolescence, there's individual variability in developmental trajectories of anxiety mm -hmm. and in developmental trajectories of substance use. And my questions that I'm drawn to, are there group differences? Can I predict what these are? Can you find risk factors for who is going to accelerate in anxiety relative to those who are going to accelerate in substance use? That would be a raw change score for me. Mm -hmm. But imagine that you have a 14-day diary study. Everybody has a phone in their pocket. Morning, noon, and night, you ping them to report on their anxiety. And then every 24 hours, you assess what their substance use was. I'm starting to be more interested in a residualized-like model. I don't expect anxiety and alcohol use to develop systematically over a 14-day period. But mm -hmm. what I would like to know is, if you're more anxious than you usually are in the afternoon, do you mm -hmm. drink more than you usually do 
in the evening. And that is not a trajectory change score question. The slight wrinkle relative to a pre-post residualized is it's not relative standing with respect to the group mean. It's Mm -hmm. relative standing with respect to your underlying trajectory. Are you looking, for lack of a better term, at more Mm trait-like, which I would think raw change and trajectories is a good approach, versus more state-like? That is, if you have a really bad afternoon, are you more likely to drink that night than you would if you didn't have that bad afternoon? And how does that scale down to two time points? It doesn't because you don't have the information to estimate that baseline trajectory. Mm-hmm. How about you? Do you got a hankering one way or the other? Uh, I tend to gravitate toward the different scores, and I understand that they can be less powerful than the ANCOVA model because the different score model, as you said, freezes the slope. And the ANCOVA model says, no, let's let the data estimate the slope, whatever's better. So you can get more power out of that. I have to tell you, I often have a hard time explaining (laughs) explaining it to somebody. And there is tremendous value in being able to interpret what comes out on the back end. Measurement error notwithstanding, different scores are unbiased. That is exactly right. That is totally lost in the fog of war. And that was one of Ragosa's big points is you take expectations and raw different scores are unbiased. The main thing is they have lower power. And as Ragosa, I don't remember the exact quote, but he alluded to at one point is the residualized change gives you greater power to test the wrong question, (laughs) which I really like. I might be willing to take the power hit for that unbiased estimate of change and something that I can interpret in the end. And that makes me look on the bright side of life. Always look on the bright side of life. One of the key take-home points I would have is these age-old throwing things at each other over raw and residualized is alive and well within all of our current models. Mm -hmm. Whatever form they are, they can have their history traced back to these latent change score models, hybrid LCMSR models, growth models, old school autoregressive cross-lagged. These are all based on not just one pre-post raw residualized, but a chain of pre-post raw or residualized, right? So don't lose sight of that. The other one is we just need to know our history, right? So I was in a job talk a number of years ago, and it was Mm -hmm. a wonderful talk on these new models of change. And I was trying to be a good guy, and I threw what I thought was a softball question. It really was is Mm -hmm. I asked the person, this is really interesting, but can you tell me in what ways this moves beyond a repeated measures ANOVA-like design? And they froze to the point that my colleagues were glaring at me Mm. because they saw it as an attacking question. Wow. And the person finally said, I don't know. I don't know repeated measures ANOVA. I got a basket full of hairy eyeballs from my colleagues because they thought that I was being a wiener Mm -hmm. and I wasn't being a wiener. Well, okay, maybe I was being a wiener. Mm -hmm. I wasn't trying to be a wiener. We should all be able to articulate if you're going to do this crazy multivariate LCM model, why Mm -hmm. are you doing that over these more traditional methods? And in what way are we overcoming the prior limitations? So hopefully that's one thing that we've puzzled through a little bit is one, these things are baked into everything that we do. And two, by moving to these more advanced modeling frameworks, we're able to address a number of the limitations of a repeated measures, ANOVA, MANOVA, ANCOVA, MANCOVA. We have all of this bloodbath of never use this and always use this. And no, you're an idiot. Always use this and never use that. Otherwise sophisticated. You're otherwise sophisticated (laughs) researchers. And Uh you know what I have to say to that? Listen, you don't need to follow me. You don't need to follow anybody. You're all individuals. Yes, we're all individuals. You're all I'm not. I'm out of here. All right, everybody. Take care. Thanks so much for being with us today. 
Don't forget to tell your friends to check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever they go to get from T1 to T2. You can also follow us on Twitter, where we are at QuantitudePod, and visit our website, QuantitudePod.org, where you can leave us a message and listen to past episodes. And finally, with autumn arriving, here in the Northern Hemisphere anyway, get a Quantitude hoodie and other cool merch from Redbubble.com, where all proceeds go to DonorsChoose.org to help support low-income schools. You've been listening to Quantitude. Yeah, yeah, buy this stuff, dose of good for people. Uh, are you? Of course I am. I'm Arnold Schwarzenegger. You Quantidoo golf. Whoa. So I have a question for you. Um, sure. I have to say, I did not expect this. Of course you didn't. Nobody expects the Austrian Inquisition. <laughs> See what I did there? Very nice. Anyway, here's my question. How is it you have an entire Quantitude episode talking about T1, T2 designs and never once make reference to my T2 movie, one of the greatest sci-fi films of all time, Terminator 2, Judgment Day? Well, I mean, Patrick was actually the one who edited this. Don't blame the other guy. Look, I'm a huge fan of Quantitude. In our episode, you do movie clips all the time, even crappy movies. You could at least have the respect. No, sir, you're absolutely right. Um... Would you like to do the sponsor thing that we do at the end? No, those are mostly stupid too. Oh, okay. Uh, well, what would you suggest? Simple. I would end this episode with the greatest movie tagline of all time. Turn off the stupid saxophone music. Are you ready? Go ahead, sir. Hasta la vista, Quantitude listeners. You are the best. That was amazing! Thank you! So do you think I might be able to get an autograph? <laughs> wow, I'd be honored. Not from you, I mean from Jiffy. Oh. Um, yeah, let's, let's see what we can do. That would be cool. I love lemurs. <laughs>